Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I am your host, Massimo Pilducci. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Gillif. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Massimo, our topics today include sex, love, masturbation, penis envy, castration, and Oedipal complexes. Nice! And- <laughs> so, so our spam um, uh, uh, mail is going to go up, and uh, hopefully so uh, it's going to be for the number of uh, hits, because who is not interested in masturbation and the Oedipus complex anyway? Yeah, castration might lower our number of listeners. That's true. Good point. <laughs> so it's a trade-off. Um, <laughs> so what know, is it about that all these things fan. have in common? So the, the uh, common thread running uh, through all of those salacious topics that we're going to cover today is uh, psychoanalysis and specifically the Freudian uh, science, question mark, that underlay it. So we're going to talk about um, to what extent Freudianism and, by extension, psychoanalysis are scientific, um, what principles you could look to to make that call, and why psychoanalysis seems to have such a strong hold still in the field of psychotherapy. Okay. Um, although, I, right there, I think that we should, in fact, be making a distinction that, that might come out more clearly later on between sort of Freud's specific theories uh, about you know, the, the human psyche, on the one hand, and sort of the broader general practice of psychoanalysis. Because the problem with psychoanalysis is that literally it just means talk therapy which means uh-huh. that it's done in a huge number of different ways, not all of which are, in fact, necessarily uh, pseudoscientific, or, and certainly not all of them are underlined by a particular uh, theory of how the human psyche works. Um, some, some of them are sort of the emergence... Uh, they emerge simply as out of out of practice. You know, people try certain things and they work and they don't, or they don't, and they drop them. Uh, but as far as Freud is in particular is concerned, I'd like to start with a quote by uh, one of the people, the researchers who has actually looked into Freud's work, and that's Frederick Cruz. And he said um, the following: Psychoanalysis is the paradigmatic pseudoscience of our epoch with its facile explanation of adult behavior by reference to unobservable and arbitrarily posited childhood fantasy. Well, that doesn't sound very charitable. No, but it's well said. (laughs) That captures some of my uh, latent frustrations. So what exactly is wrong with with psychoanalysis? Well, with Freudian psychoanalysis in particular, I guess, uh, is is the the first thing. And, and, um, And how does that qualified as a pseudoscience, right? That's, that's part of the problem. And um, I have a, I'm going to draw throughout the, these, this episode a lot on uh, the work of a, of, in particular of one person, uh, the um, recently passed away, Frank Chaffee, who was a, um, essentially an expert on Freud and Freudianism. Um, he, he actually contributed a chapter 
uh, to a book on on pseudoscience, uh, the philosophy of pseudoscience that is coming out that I co- that I co-edited. It's coming out for the University of Chicago Press uh, next year in, in 2013. And and Frank was well renowned as as one of the most um, informed and um, astute critics uh, of Freudian psychoanalysis. So um, a lot of the references that I'm going to be making are from his work, and of course from 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 um, people that he cites, both in favor and, and against, because he's uh, you know he's he's very he was very careful at uh, and say okay here's the, the people who actually don't have a problem with uh, with Freud. But one of the things that that really struck me when I started reading into this is that the problems started very early on. I mean certainly while Freud was still alive. Uh, fairly early on in the 1910s and, and, and 20s, uh, there were already people essentially accusing Freud of doing so, pseudoscience, even though... Uh-huh. And what did they point to? Well, for instance, uh, one of the things that um, was problematic from the beginning was the ambiguity uh, in, in uh, uh, Freud's use of the word uh, um, sex and love. Uh, mm-hmm. So, for instance, um, uh, Choffey says that when objections were raised against the generality of Freud's uh, sexual theology of neurosis, and then people cited some counterexamples to you know things that didn't seem to fit into a uh, uh, sexual explanation for a neurosis, Freudians explained the objections uh, that the objections were based on a misconstrual of what Freud meant by the terms sexuality, erotic, and libido. Um, and basically, they re-engineered um, uh, these words to just mean love in general. Well, you know, mm. most of us think of one thing if you think about sex and you f- or libido, and they think of a different thing, although certainly related, if you think about love, because love includes a bunch of other things, like, first of all, love to yourself, and also filial love, for instance, or love of an idea. You know, there's, there's all sorts of stuff uh, that falls under love that certainly wouldn't be appropriate to think of in terms of, you know, uh, uh, libido or sexuality, hmm. but but did that solve the problem? I mean, did that did that uh, redefinition actually make Freudian theories? Uh, I don't know, well supported. Well, here's here's what happened. So um, uh, in 1914, Charles Burr. Uh, wrote the following about about this issue. When anyone now accuses the disciples of the newer psychology, and he's referring to Freudian psychoanalysis, of laying greater stress on sexual matters as a cause of mental trouble than they deserve, the word libido is claimed to be used symbolically. But on reading the interpretation of the dreams reported in books and papers, one finds libido is used in its common, ordinary, everyday meaning. So, in other mm. words, he was accusing Freudians of being disingenuous about these these kind of things. That you know, mm. to, to shift. This reminds me. This reminds me a little bit of how people like Deepak Chopra talk about quantum thises and thats. That in some contexts, when they think they can get away with it, they speak literally, uh, as if the the phenomena they're describing of I don't know people's People exerting their will on the world through some sort of magic, uh, magic causal chain. Um, they speak of, of those as being literally the result of quantum phenomena. But then, when they're talking to people who, who are going to give them a hard time, like Richard Dawkins, they fall back on the oh, this is metaphorical. This is this is right. analogical. Right. Right. Yeah. It's it's also the same kind of thing, uh, or a very similar uh, sort of approach that is used often by. 
uh, sort of postmodernists, right? Um, the, the the problem with postmodernism postmodernism uh, claims often, not always, but often is that there are slippery claims because to to pinpoint because uh, there often are two interpretations. According to one interpretation, the author is making a really strong and surprising claim, which, however, happens to be factually wrong. Uh, on the weaker interpretation, the author is making a very reasonable claim, um, but uh, then it turns out to be not particularly interesting. <laughs> Uh, so you know, and the same can be said here. I mean, if if you think if you're if you're beginning to to, to, to tell me that pro- people have problems, you know, neuroses that they originate from a variety of of um, psychological problems, some of which have to do with libido in the literal sense, and others have to do with more generally with say love or relationships. Well, okay, um, but that's much less strong of a statement that if everything were the result, in fact, of of sexuality problems of sexuality. So you're- we should probably uh, give our listeners an example or two of psychological phenomena or, or behavioral issues that Freud or his disciples would have explained via, via sexual explanations. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. So let's see. Um, uh, again, most of, most of the times these were used for neuro- to explain neurosis. Right. Uh, but neurosis themselves, of course, are a general category. Um, and it's it's also a pretty slippery category, right? I mean, it's you know what counts as a neurosis? A neurosis is any kind of, uh, according to the therapist, pathological, uh, you know, version of a, a normal human behavior. So you, mm-hmm. you know, an obsession, for instance, is a neurosis. This is an example of a neurosis. Now, but you can be obsessed with all sorts of things and for all sorts of reasons. And that's and, and the problem is that um, every time a Freudian makes a statement about you know this particular obsession or this particular neurosis is caused by, um, the claim is usually simply a hunch. It's, a, it's an intuition. It's not something that is actually based on, on any particular verifiable or falsifiable empirical evidence. Uh, again, let me give you another comment that was made um, at the time. This was goes back to 1926. Um, Freudians tell us that by, by sex, they mean all that spiritual affection, which may or may not be accompanied by physical passion, and this is simply untrue. By sex, they mean just what everybody else means. So in other words, again, it's another example of, of ambiguity. Well, actually, is it possible that they tried to redefine what they meant by sex just to make their theories more acceptable to, uh, I don't know, more prudish audiences? Um, that's an interesting comment. Um, I don't think so, because if there is one thing that Freud didn't seem to be particularly concerned with, uh, was the, the, the public reception of, of his theories in, in those terms, in terms of, you know, sort of a prudish response. In fact, quite honestly, even critics uh, of Freud um, uh, seem to um, acknowledge, for instance, let me give you a, a specific uh, quotation, uh, Anthony Storr, who is a modern critic of Freudian psychoanalysis, um, says that there is, if there is one thing that we need to um, sort of give credit to Freud is precisely having brought um, issues of, of sexual um, sex, t- talking about sex, libido, and so on and so forth into the open, mm-hmm. regardless of what sort of general you know society at large might might think or might react, and the fact that today we take these these issues for granted and we can talk about it uh, without a problem is in fact the result of the fact that Freud started that doing that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, and of course, Storr go, even goes on further to credit Freud for something else, which is, he says, um, Freud's technique of listening to distressed people 
over long periods rather than giving them orders or advice has formed the foundation of most, most modern forms of psychotherapy. Uh, with bene- benefits to both patients and practitioners. So, in other words, it wasn't it wasn't all, um, you know, uh, bad stuff. But but in terms of science, we're talking about if we're talking about so there is a distinction here between uh, psychotherapy as a form of well therapy in the loose sense of the term. That is, you know, okay, you you have problems, you want to sit down and talk to me openly um, on the one hand, and on the other hand, as if a type of scientific approach to human behavior, to understanding and the, the causes of and and in an actionable way, the, the causes of human behavior in an actionable way, in a way that can actually help people. Right. That's a, that's a really great distinction to make. And it, uh, I would break it down in two ways. Uh, in one sense, where when we talk about whether psychotherapy is correct or Freudianism is, is correct, we're talking about, or I, I think we should be talking about whether it works relative to like some control or baseline and that baseline might be uh the effect of just talking to a sympathetic person who is not using any particular kind of theory or strategy or has no training at all um so you know we so we when we talk about it working we want to know whether it does something beyond just uh you know talking to another person um is there something particular to freudianism or psychotherapy that that makes it work and then the other way in which we i think we might sensibly mean the question, does, is it correct or does it work, is um, uh, it could be the case that it does work better than that re- you know, relevant baseline, significantly better, but that our theory about why it works better is wrong. That's right. Yeah, an analogy, for instance, might be, um, and I'm using the word might on, on <laughs> very carefully here, uh, acu- <laughs> acupuncture. Right, so uh-huh. the, the jury's still out there, as far as I can tell, on, on whether actually acupuncture has any effect beyond um, uh, the placebo. But if it does, uh, and it's it's definitely possible that it, that it does for certain kind of ailments, it's certainly not because of the the, the meridians of of chi energy going through the body, because there's no such a thing as chi energy or the meridians in the body. So that would be an example of a practice that works, but not for the reasons that people think um, that the practitioners think it works. Right, um, you right. know, similar examples are probably easy to find in, in herbal medicine, right? So the, the, the ancient Romans and, and, and other, um, you know, populations had remedies that actually did work. Uh, and then in some cases we do uh, use today in a more refined fashion. But they certainly didn't work for the reasons that the ancient Romans thought they, they were working. So, uh, right. so yeah, you're right. That's, a, that's an important distinction between whether something works, that's one question, and, but but the, it's separate from the question of whether it works because of the reasons that the practitioners say it works. The latter is really the question that goes to the heart of is Freudian psychoanalysis science or pseudoscience. You asked me for an example earlier, and, and I found one. It doesn't have to do with neurosis, but it's – well, actually it does, but a different kind of neurosis. And the answer there for the Freudians was um, – Related to love, so let me let me let me give you this example. This is Great. about war neurosis. So, war, did you say war? Neurosis? War and after okay. World War One, right, right. a lot of people came in, of course, with you know all the symptoms that today we we associate with you know post traumatic stress disorder and that sort of stuff, <laughs> this, right? This doesn't really seem like a phenomena in dire need of an explanation. <laughs> that people no. would have neuroses after coming back from the battle. You would think. Line. You would think. Okay, and go yet, on. I, I admit to some trepidation about what you're going to say, but go and, on. And yet, here it is. Um, so here's Chaffee again. He says several 
other work psychiatrists felt that Warner Roses refuted Freud's sexual etiology because, believe oh, it or not, Freud, Freud said that this was a matter that the, the post-war neuroses were in fact a matter of, of sexual repressed sexual instincts. <laughs> And um, Freud tried to meet this objection by suggesting that the apparent counter examples in which conflicts over self-preservation, let's say, rather than sexuality, were the source of the war neurosis, were really illustrations of the correctness of his theory since self-preservation is a bottom, a sexual impulse. Oh, give me a break. So, for instance, in his autobiographical sketch of 1925, Freud wrote, and I quote, the war neurosis, they said, have proved the sexual factors were unnecessary to the etiology of neurotic disorders, but their triumph was frivolous and premature. Psychoanalysis had long before arrived at the concept of narcissism and of narcissistic neurosis, in which the subject's libido is attached to his own ego instead of to an object. So in other words, it's all about sex. <laughs> Even right. self-preservation and war becomes a matter of you're in love with yourself. You have your libido to, with yourself. You're narcissistic. And that's why you got a problem. Oh, my God. I'm surprised that he didn't do something with, like, the guns or the, the, um, <laughs> that's the right. trenches. Maybe, maybe he could have done something with the trenches. <laughs> he totally he did. didn't. That was a missed opportunity, Freud. Maybe he did. Uh, now, <laughs> this is the sort of thing that, that famously led William James to make the following comment um, about, um, about the narcissistic libido of the Freudians, right? Uh, quote, a bog of logical liquefaction into the midst of which all definite conclusions of any sort can be trusted here long to sink and disappear. <laughs> That's, it's a great right. quote. <laughs> I think that could be applied to a lot of other suicides, but I, I like the, the, the image of a bog of logical liquefaction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can just see it sort of bubbling <laughs> grimly. Right. Yeah. So that was one of the examples. Um, uh, there are others that I that I sort of um, um, made a m- note of bringing up. For instance, let's talk about castration, shall we? Uh, if we must. <laughs> okay. You, you. You, you think that's going to bring the, the audience down, huh? Oh, well. <laughs> it's going to bring me down. Particularly the male audience. Um, <laughs> anyway, so at some point, Fre- Freud, uh, again, this is uh, quoting Chaffee, wrote of the threat of castration. And this is a quotation from Freud, that the central experience of the years of childhood, the greatest problem of early, of early life and the strongest source of later inadequacy in, in man is precisely the problem of, of the threat of constriction. However, Chaffee says, um, uh, he held that a prescription on constriction threats would be of no avail. So it's not going to be useful uh, to eliminate threats of castration. And you, you wonder, well, why? If the threat of castration in early childhood is a problem that generates neurosis, why would it be the case that eliminating that threat isn't going to have any, any effect? And that was a, apparently typical of Freudian, a Freudian approach to things. That is, um, for all the theorizing, apparently there was comparatively little that could be done preemptively, that is, before the patient got to the couch um, uh, in order to avoid the neurosis. You know, the, the, there was very little preemptive cure, I, guess, I suppose, or pre- uh, preemptive action that one could take in order to avoid the generation of neurosis. Neurosis would appear anyway, and then the only way you have to treat them is to get on the couch with Freud. That's, that's convenient. That seems very convenient, indeed. <laughs> yeah, uh, so one of, the, one of the best, like, universal... Uh, good epistemic 
thinking habits uh, is the asking yourself, you know, what what evidence could I encounter that would make me less inclined to believe this, right? Right. And uh, I, I I was skimming over the article that you have been talking about, and there's a, a great example uh, of this. Like, to, to my surprise, sometimes this principle just doesn't work with people that, like, so the way I expect it to work is when you when you corner someone in this way, they either uh, have to come up with something, you know, plausible that would cause them to change their minds if they saw it, or they have to admit that their, you know, original belief was sort of uh, a pseudo-belief right. um, or, right. or, or an article of faith. Um, right. But in fact, that just doesn't always work. And so there's this example from... Uh, the NYU Symposium on Psychoanalysis and Scientific Method. That's right. Which uh, I guess was mid-century sometime. Um, and so they they asked a prominent psychoanalyst named Jacob Arlo um, whether he could even conceive of the possibility of encountering a child who did not want to uh, kill his father and have sex with his mother. And and he said he couldn't imagine it. The, the most he could imagine... Um, when, when they asked him what would persuade him that the child didn't have an Oedipal complex was that the child was an idiot. That's right. <laughs> Which it's uh, fascinating once, because just, once, yeah. once you've defined sanity as wanting to kill your father and marry your mother, you, there's, I don't know what to do with you. Yes, precisely. Um, but, but you bring up an interesting point, which is, you know, uh, one of the, the hallmarks of science, of you know, of actual science, is of course, is that, that, that it makes progress, and scientific theories theories do change over time, right? So we have, you know, the classic example of the Copernican theory that started out with the simple assumption that the orbits of the planets are are circular, but then Kepler uh, came in and, and improved the theory by assuming that. Uh, the orbits of the planets were uh, are in fact elliptical, and that got a much better uh, match with the data. So that is a classic example of a theory that is fundamentally correct, and yet it changes significantly over time because of empirical evidence. The change is prompted by the fact that, uh, in in this particular case, you know Copernicus predictions of uh, the positions of the planet didn't really work very well, and on the other hand, Kepler's simple modification of the theory. Uh, suddenly got things to work much better. Now, um, Freudians sometimes claim that that is the case also with with, uh, Freudian psychoanalysis. That is that it, that it changed over time, and and uh, but there are two interesting cases that that contrast how this change is supposed to go, and and uh, they actually seem to be more damning than than anything else about um, about why Freudian psychoanalysis changes or doesn't. One is the case of penis envy, and the other one is the case of masturbation. What do you think this is going to do to our audience at the moment? Is it going to go up? And I didn't mean that literally. Anyway, um, so let's talk about penis envy first. So the idea is that, um, you know, uh, Freudians say apparently that uh, they changed their mind, that the theory changed its position about homosexuality, for instance, and penis envy. Um, and um, in the case of penis envy, for instance, there is essentially no more talk about penis envy among modern Freudians, which, on the other hand, was a big deal uh, in Freud's time and, and among Freud's immediate supporters. Uh, you want to explain what penis envy means? Um, you don't think that the, the words are self-explanatory <laughs> enough? Uh, I guess so, but I, don't, I actually don't have a sense of how literally it was meant like well, yeah, the, it is meant the, as, the as theory a, that uh, so, mm-hmm. women wanted, wished that they had penises. Was that right? right. Just meant that they to imply that they wished they had like the power and the 
I don't know, virility or status Correct. of men in society Correct. or that they actually wish they had a penis or that they were men? Well, uh, well, all of those interpretations are interesting as far as I'm concerned. But the, the general idea, you captured the general idea, which is um, that uh, this would explain some of the neuroses of women because they have this, this sort of um, envy of the fact that they don't have a penis. Now, whether they actually literally want a penis or, or in fact, f- use that as a substitute for uh, you know, the power of, of being a man, that's a different matter. But the interesting thing is that the concept played a huge role initially in Freudian psychoanalysis and then sort of at some point got dropped. Now, hmm. when Why, this though? is pointed out to the Freudians, uh, they say, well, see, this is evidence of... of, of um, um, you know, progress on theory because, you know, the empirical evidence sort of basically uh, uh, started to suggest that there is no such a thing as penis envy. But the problem is that, first of all, it's not clear to which empirical evidence they're actually referring to. Um, right. If, <laughs> if I had to guess, and I don't know the relevant history here, but if I had to guess, I would say that the concept of penis envy dropped by the wayside because of feminism. Correct. And it's um, kind of an insulting idea. And that's not like... It's good that they dropped it. I'm not complaining about that, but they don't get like epistemic credit for it. Correct. Exactly. So what? Very coincidentally, what happened is that the the, the concept of penis envy started going off the radar as soon as the modern feminist movement basically arose. Um, so and and became prominent. So you're right. There is no empirical reason. There is in fact a what somewhat uncharitably perhaps could be called a marketing reason or certainly a social reason. You know, it's, it became increasingly more and more unpalatable for people to talk about penis envy referring to, to right. women. Right. And going through this whole exercise of, of you know, examining the, the claims that Freudians make about why their thing is a science gives me this weary feeling of like having to successfully make the rules more and more precise because people keep finding idiotic loopholes to them that I hadn't considered. <laughs> like like the, the rule that, you know, you, you have to, or that you get credit for changing your mind uh, as time goes on. It hadn't occurred to me that people would not be changed their mind in response to evidence. So now, okay, thanks right. a lot, guys. We have to now specify that. Right. Another case, um, also equally documented, documentable throughout the history, the 20th century history of Freudianism is the, the take uh, that Freudians had on homosexuality. Initially, it was a disease. Uh, it was a problem. It was a source of neurosis. And then these days, it's not con- no longer considered such. Now, to be fair, uh, also mainstream psychology went from considering, you know, the, the famous uh, um, diagnostic manual um, uh, that lists all sort of all, all, all mental diseases did, in fact, at some point, up to a point, uh, list homosexuality as a disease, and it doesn't anymore. Um, uh-huh. And again, um, you can you can argue that that was a base on the basis of, of um, empirical evidence. But as far as the Freudians is concerned, it's interesting that the change happened again, pretty much in in sync with. Uh, social changes that made it mm-hmm. more and more uh, homosexuality more acceptable. Now, contrast this with the third the, the third example, which is masturbation. The Freudians have not changed the, the, their stand on masturbation. Masturbation is still a problem. So in, in 1896, for instance, uh, as early as 1896, Freud referred to masturbation as it's persni- per, a pernicious form of sexual satisfaction. Um, pernicious how? What effects did he think it caused? Um, it, it, um, Blindness. <laughs> 
Hairy hands. No, that's interesting. That the, the the fact is that it sucks uh, mental uh, energy, uh, psychic energy, and, and the reason for that is because uh, I, this is this is serious. Even though I'm laughing at it, but um, the reason for that is because you know if you masturbate, you have to do all the work. Not just the physical work, but mentally. You have to imagine, um, you know, all the characters involved <laughs> and how they act and all that sort of stuff. So that's apparently, wow. you know, that saps your mental energy. So it's it's really not particularly useful. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, I, in fact, yeah. this is pretty much what what um, Alden Bunker said in 1930. Uh, it says, since in masturbation external stimuli are meager and fantasy must be drawn on, it requires a great consumption of psychic energy and so may readily result in exhaustion of its supply as if, oh as if mental energy, psychic energy, whatever that is. You know, I started enjoying the postmodernists much more when I stopped thinking of them as making actual uh, empirical claims with truth value and started <laughs> instead thinking of them as, as being sort of poetry, um, which is sometimes enjoyable. And so I feel like I should probably shift my, my mental paradigm regarding Freudianism and just see it as comedy, in which framework it's actually quite enjoyable. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Um, well, so but the, the point is, of course, here that the bastard, the, the, the uh, appraisal of masturbation hasn't changed, and and uh, one would want to know why. Why did they change their mind about uh, you know homosexuality, uh, and they changed their mind about penis envy, but not about masturbation? Here's what Chaffee says about this. He says, "Well, since unlike homosexuals and feminists, masturbators do not form a constituency likely to take to the streets to make its disapproval felt, <laughs> their disparagement was not made the subject of belated apologies." <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's an interesting, there's all sorts of interesting points here <laughs> that can be made. Um, now, you talked about the, the Oedipus complex um, already. Um, there mm-hmm. is also an issue of, you know, we actually have um, testimonials from some of Freud's own patients as to his methods. Because the, 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 one of the questions about psychoanalysis is, you know, what is the data? What, where did the data come from? Right. Well, I'm, inter- I'm interested both in have we tested these theories and also in how did he come up with them in the first place? Ah, like, that's open up parenthesis like, there. If you just made them up, then I, I actually don't, it, you know, just knowing that means you can bypass the testing because you should have no more reason to privilege that hypothesis than any other random hypothesis. Okay, but let's, uh, let's stay for that, on that for a second um, before um, going back actually to, uh, I have a couple of, of uh, testimonials from, from yeah, Freud's please. patients. Yeah, I want to hear that. But, but um, okay, so this is an interesting question because in philosophy of science, um, what we're talking right now, it's, it's, it's um, referred to as the, the distinction between the uh, context of discovery and the context of justification. Mm-hmm. So uh, according to Popper, at least, um, the job of philosophers is really to investigate the context of justification. And the context of discovery is pretty much left to, in fact, psychologists or cognitive mm-hmm. scientists. The reason for that is because, according to Popper um, uh, um, and several other philosophers, there really is no rhyme or reason in uh, the way in which scientists come up with theories. That is, you know, uh, call it intuition, call it I went out and had a walk and came back and had a brilliant idea. Whatever it is, ideas come to the human mind. Now, the the implication is that it's not that there's anything mystical about it, obviously. But the fact that the the, the, the basic 
uh, concept is that new ideas, new theories are generated in, in complex and largely, um, to some extent, um, subconscious processes, processing of information. And therefore, there's no, account, there's no logical accounting of how a theory is uh, or an idea comes about. What well, there has that, to be a logical accounting of. Well, I want to hear your, your opinion on this in a minute. But uh, what it has to be, on the other hand, the logical accounting of. Otherwise, you're not doing science. Is well, once you got the idea, how do you actually verify? Right? How do you how do you test it? What 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 do you propose to do with that idea? But yes. So, what what are your thoughts about the, the context of discovery? So that's that's interesting, and that's a great distinction. But it's it feels to me like it does matter. Um, in terms of justification, it matters how the idea was, how the hypothesis was formulated in the first place, because it seems like it should determine what prior probability you put on the theory being true, and that in turn, that in turn determines how strong the evidence is that you should require before you know updating to believe that theory. So, uh, if you you know if you generated a hypothesis by because that's exactly how things appear to work in the world, and you have a bunch of different anecdotal uh, examples of, that seem to fit that theory, um, then I think you should require less um, hard and fast evidence to make you believe that's true than if you had a theory in a dream um, and, and started testing that. Well, you know what I mean? Like, I, don't, I don't know how you can separate the evidence, the strength of the evidence you got uh, from, or I don't know how you can use that on its own in isolation without considering the prior probability of the theory being true. Yeah, so let's, let's think about a, you know, a specific example. Let's say Einstein's thought experiment about you know, uh, riding a, a light wave, right? Mm-hmm. And that was the first insight apparently that he had in, in the theory of relativity. Now, um, which had all sorts of you know, consequences, including the fact that the speed of light ought to be a constant, universal constant and that sort of stuff. Now, um, does it really matter how Einstein's brain generated? I mean, it matters in, the, in a sense that it's an interesting question in, in its own right, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to say, well, it doesn't matter in a broad right, sense. Just, it it right. clearly does matter because it's, I, I like to know how the human brain you know, generates those things. But in terms of the hypothesis per se, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what if Einstein had told you, okay, I had that in a dream, or uh, you know, I think I got a telepathic message from Mars, and they told me to think about it this way. Um, now, I probably wouldn't believe the latter, but um, would it really matter to the truth of the, uh, of, the, of the idea itself? I mean, no matter how he says that he came up with that idea, we're, we're still all going to do exactly the same thing in order to test it, right? We're going to go out there and say, okay, well, what happens if I measure the speed of light, uh, you know, independently of the frame of reference and so on and so forth? And, well, you know, is it a constant or not? But in that case, the evidence was so strong. I mean, the evidence was just overwhelming. We, we observed it. We observed it to, in fact, be the case. So it wasn't like we had a sample and we were... We were, you know, observing a pattern in the sample and trying to figure out how likely that would have been to arise just by chance alone. Um, can we actually generalize it to the population? This was, I feel like here the, the strength of the evidence was just so overwhelming that it didn't really matter how he came up with it. But it would matter for theories that... But it wasn't you know, really that overwhelming at the moment in which she proposed the idea, right? Or, what, the or, evidence? Yeah. No, no, no. The, the, when, we, when we went out and observed that he was, in fact, correct, that... That observation was 
it wasn't that ambiguous. Right, that's correct. But but now we we already switched from the from the context of discovery to the one to the justification. Right. I mean, the, the, the so distinction is how you come up with an idea as opposed to how to test it. Yeah, yeah. I know. I agree that it's an important distinction. I was just saying that the the process by which you came up with the idea matters increasingly when uh, when the evidence you're getting is not overwhelmingly decisive. So, okay, let me just give you an example <clears throat> that that prompted my comment in the first place. Yep. I get irritated sometimes when people talk about testing like evidence for or against the factual claims in the Bible uh, about, um, I, I don't know, just about uh, things that, uh, uh, that humanity is or isn't supposed to do or about things that Jesus supposedly did. Um, okay. And, or, or, okay, never mind. Claim, let's, let's take the example of claims of what happens to us after we die. Um, so, you can look at evidence that and talk about whether it's suggestive one way or the other, but because the original idea was just invented out of whole cloth, uh, I don't feel like even if you could come up with something that seemed all else equal to indicate that it was more likely uh, that there was a heaven or a hell uh, right. than you should have thought beforehand before seeing that evidence. It's still just... Like your prior probability should be so low because the idea was just yeah. invented. Yeah, when yeah. when you were you know, when you were uh, explaining the the, the latter example, the the thing that came to my mind was in fact the priors. Uh, I think you're correct, absolutely, and I, I don't think that Popper would disagree. If Popper had actually had ever written in Bayesian terms, he would have said, "Yes, of course, not all ideas are created equal." Um, and you know some of them are priors that are, have priors that are so low that you might actually want to think about it twice before you go even out and bother uh, testing certain things. Um, so you're right. Not not all ideas are created equal, uh, and that does have implication for the testing, even even whether you're actually going to be bothered to do the testing or not. Um, uh, still, however, the process of origination of ideas. Uh, that was Popper's point, is essentially a, a province, more the province of cognitive psychology, cognitive science, uh, than philosophy, because that it doesn't have to be logical. What does have to be logical is the way you go about testing those ideas once you agree that it's an idea that it's worth it, you know, it's worth enough uh, effort to actually go out and test it. Sure. Yeah. Now let me go back because we're we're getting actually close to the to the end here already. Huh. <laughs> um, but let me go back to to um, a couple of things. One is is a quote from one of um, uh, apparently one of uh, of uh, Freud's patients, um, and uh, the guy said, um, uh, "quote I would often give a whole series of associations to a dream symbol." Uh, and he would, and E. Freud would wait until he found an association which would fit into his scheme of interpretation and pick it like a detective at a lineup who waits until he sees these men. Hmm. So that sounds a lot to me like, uh, you know, how psychics work. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so you, you, you wait until you, you get a hit and then you run, you run from there, uh, and then the, the, uh, your, your uh, client is likely going to forget or, or dismisses the, the, the many misses, and then he's going to remember the, the hits. So it's one of these things like you, you, know, you say one, two, three, four, five things. As soon as one of those fits your uh, scheme or fits the, the way you think about it, then you jump on that one and you ignore the other ones. But, of course, the question is, well, why did you ignore the other ones? Hmm. I, I love that that in the course of just a short forty minute segment, we've managed to 
compare Freudianism to religion, psychics, <laughs> um, to, uh, to, to like quantum psycho, uh, like new age babble, um, postmodernism, and uh, I guess not directly, but sort of indirectly compared it to uh, string theory in that they've uh, defined all results as confirming their theory. Well, if you want another comparison, then uh, here's what the, the skeptic dictionary says about Freudian psychoanalysis. Uh, Sigmund Freud is considered the father of psychoanalysis, which may be the granddaddy of all pseudoscientific psychotherapies, second only to Scientology as the champion purveyor of false and misleading claims about the mind, mental health, and mental illness. So there, you got, we also got Scientology into the mix. <laughs> wow, I wonder, I wonder how Scientology would feel about, about being uh, classified with Freudianism. I'm sure they would love that. Right. But the comparison is apt for one, for one reason, uh, that like Scientologists, Freudian psychoanalysts, of course, uh, uh, maintain that you know, the, most of the problems, if not all of, of human uh, psychological problems, are not to be addressed with, uh, you know, they're not biological in nature. They're not, they're not, they cannot be addressed by the use of chemicals. They have to be addressed by talking. Uh, and that, you know, Scientology does have a, uh, a sort of similar attitude, although even more cuckoo if you, if you believe that, um, <laughs> toward uh, psychiatry. Um, I think we, should conclu- we could conclude with um, another quote from, from Frank Chaffee, as I said, in part this... this um, I love his quote. Yeah, and in part, as I said, this, this is really uh, a tribute uh, to him because he passed away recently and, and he was a great thinker about... Uh, pseudoscience in general, not just not just Freudians, uh, but he concludes the chapter that he that he um, wrote from my book with the following uh, sentence uh, phrase: uh, Freud's joke um, about the brandy drinker whose indulgence impaired his hearing is opposite here, uh, as a general summary of what what he's been talking about. On the advice of his doctor, uh, the guy refrained from brandy and regained his hearing, but he nevertheless returned to drinking brandy. When his doctor remonstrated with him. He produced the understandable defense that nothing he heard while refraining from brandy was as good as the brandy. For many, Freud is that brandy. (laughs) Meaning that, (laughs) and that is an explanation of why Freudian psychoanalysis keeps being very popular even to this day, despite Mm -hmm. the fact that it's been scientifically uh, pretty much debunked. (laughs) (laughs) So think of Freud as good brandy. Uh huh. I love it. Uh, that is a perfect note on which to end the section of the podcast, in addition to which we don't really have a choice because I think we've run out of pseudosciences yep. and superstitions <laughs> to compare Freudianism to. So uh, let's wrap up this section of the podcast and move on to the Rationally Speaking Picks. Welcome back. Every episode, Julie and I pick a couple of our favorite books, movies, websites, or whatever tickles our rational fancy. Let's start, as usual, with Julie's pick. Thanks, Massimo. My pick is a webcomic. It's called Saturday Morning Breakfast Cereal. Oh, yes. Um, And that's uh, smbc-comics.com. It's one of the more, uh, one of the most intellectually sophisticated and clever Web comics around, and it's a big favorite of mine. Uh, and it's just gotten better over the years too. I've been following it for a while now. Um, some of the like best and most interesting discussions of philosophical paradoxes, or um, like just general issues in metaethics and uh, and time travel, uh, philosophy of science, 
are all in Saturday morning breakfast cereal. Um, but I should warn you that you you have to have kind of a dark sense of humor because it's uh, it's it's a it's a bleak strip. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> I, I also read it regularly. Yeah, I'll I'll post a couple examples of uh, strips that I like uh, exploring, like epistemology and utilitarianism from from a darkly comic angle yeah. on the website. Sounds good. Well, since the week that we're tipping this episode uh, is the beginning of the seventh season of the rebooted, rebooted version of Doctor Who, uh, which, <laughs> <laughs> which is the longest running uh, sci-fi show ever since 1963, with only a few years of intermission here and there before the rebooting. Anyway, uh-huh. because of that, uh, there's, a, uh, there's a great article that uh, appeared on uh, io9.com about to- 10 totally different TV shows that Doctor Who has been over the years. Uh, the Doctor Who fans know that there have been 11 Doctors up to this point. And, uh, and the, the, the article talks about how the, the show changed dramatically uh, from, you know, with different incarnations depending on the different actors and the different writers, of course, um, of the show. And even though there is some consistency and there is, you know, sort of themes and characters and so on, um, and a sort of a, a general, out of a general feeling of the show, it actually has reinvented itself many, many times, which is one of the reasons it's likely survived this long. And so, some of the these incarnations uh, brought the show from an educational adventure show; it started out really as a children's show, uh, to a claustrophobic show about monsters, mobs, monsters attacking everywhere. Uh, to essentially an Avengers knockoff, and by Avengers I don't mean the Marvel um, uh, superheroes, but the Avengers from the 1970s, um, the, the the British TV show. Um, and then it became a, se- a series of gothic horror movies, and then uh, it turned into an absurdist slap- slapstick comedy. Um, and then there, it was about boys' own adventure stories, and then it was an insane pantomime. And, and it trans, transmuted into a Sorcerer's Apprentice kind of uh, uh, character. <laughs> and then a post-war survivor story. Uh, and, and, and finally, you know, a relationship comedy with, with universe-shattering consequences. So it's really is, it really is a great show. The new season is starting uh, this month on BBC America. Uh, this is the seventh season of the new reboot. So, you know, people that are into science, philosophy, and, uh, uh, and science fiction definitely will love that, uh, that show. Massimo, it never occurred to me until now that Doctor Who is essentially the TV show of Theseus. Like the ship of Theseus, where yeah. mm-hmm. it has all of the pieces have been <laughs> gradually replaced Correct. one or, or more times over the years, and so there's no piece of the ship, or in this case, the TV show, that bears any resemblance to the original. Yep. But it's been such a gradual transformation. Like the the lead character is different, the whole tone and like spirit of the show is different, but it still gets called Doctor Who. Yeah, that's is right. it the same show? <laughs> Who knows? It's a good philosophical <laughs> question. <laughs> All right, we are all out of time. So this concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening.